As I said in episode 900, my update about dropping this podcast back to one a week for a while for health reasons, I'm going to be sharing brand new episodes only on Mondays for a while. I'm going to use my usual Wednesday and Friday slots to reshare some excellent older episodes. What follows is one of those interviews. Political space is very tool oriented. So you're, you know, you're sort of you're a mail consultant. You think mail, you know, mail is the solution to every problem. You're a phone consultant. You think let's just call more voters. And I've never thought that way. And so I think the more tools, the more obviously there's tools of outreach, and then there's also tools of listening. And the more tools we can bring to bear to the problem, the better off we're going to be. Hello. This is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. I enjoyed my conversation with Patrick Ruffini, only the second Republican political consultant to appear on this show. The first was Liz Mayer. Patrick was an early practitioner in the intersection of internet and politics, working among other places at the RNC. And he's the founder of two companies in the space, the latest being Echelon Insights. And though he is a Republican, Patrick did not vote for Donald Trump in the general election. He and I share an interest in political technology, political data, and data visualization. And when he recently suggested that I guest lecture at his class on data visualization and politics at Johns Hopkins, I said I'd do it on the condition that he be a guest on this podcast. We actually did the interview in front of his students right after my talk, which is quite fun, and they helpfully contributed some of the questions that Patrick answered. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Patrick Ruffini of Echelon Insights. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. So, Patrick, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. I'm Patrick Ruffini. I'm currently a partner and co-founder at Echelon Insights, uh, which is a Republican center-right polling and analytics firm. I did not, however, start my career in Washington and politics and polling. I was mostly involved on the technology side, although that's quite a bit of what I'm doing now, but um, mostly involved on technology and digital politics, so starting during the Bush administration, working on President George W. Bush's uh, re-election campaign at the Republican National Committee in those days, um, sort of running some of the first digital campaigns when that started to become a thing, and then eventually started a company uh, that did that for down ballot and campaigns, but also public affairs groups decided, you know, I've always been sort of at heart a data person, so decided to do that. And it's quite a notable career in the space. Um, where did you grow up and what kind of home life did you have that led you down this direction? David Axelrod loves to ask these types of questions. I'm always like preparing for my star turn. On yeah, this is your star turn. Yes. Right, so this is like good preparation. Yeah. Now, I actually, I initially grew up in Europe, you know, in Italy. Uh, actually grew up, and that's sort of where my dad was from. Uh, my mom was American. So I had a little bit of an international upbringing, eventually moved uh, to America, grew up in Connecticut. How old were you when you came to the U.S.? I was eight. It was the 1988 presidential election, and that was, I guess I'm an enthusiast, and that's where I first started getting interested in politics. Why do you think you picked the Republican Party uh, in the long run? (sighs) That's a really loaded question. I don't know. I really, uh, so I wasn't, I did not grow up, I guess, um, and I guess I would have been 10 at the time, like the the, the exact, uh, so that was my first presidential election. But, you know, we talk a lot about your formative experience sort of being around maybe the first the political leader you first voted for. 
I just loved George H.W. Bush for some reason. I don't know. You sort of grew up near where I was from. And his father say. was a Connecticut senator. Right? That's right. Yeah. That's right. So, I, you know, I, I, you know I, I couldn't tell you sort of the ideological motivations that I had at age 10. You, but uh, <laughs> well, were your parents uh, Republicans? Uh, so, uh, you know, my parents were not really anything, right? I think my mom was kind of, you know, was Republican. My dad wasn't really anything being not from America, at least in, Amer- in terms of American politics. So what was the first time that you volunteered or kind of got active in politics? Uh, it would have been a couple years later. So I, I think I was handing out literature at the supermarket for Connecticut gubernatorial candidate John Rowland, who eventually ended up doing a couple stints in federal prison. He was a congressman so, before that. Yes. He was a congressman, and he was running for governor, and he did not, uh, I believe, win the governor's race. That was won by Lowell Weicker as an independent candidate in Connecticut. Um, so it was kind of, there was an interesting, at the time, interesting like sort of frustration of the existing party lines. And I have in my office, I have one of your posters, and I also have a Joe Lieberman for U.S. Senate poster, because he was actually uh, the conservative candidate running in that election. I didn't realize that at the time, but he ended up being sort of the more conservative candidate that a lot of the Republicans in the state were actually supporting against Lowell Weicker, a very liberal Republican at the time. And of course, he ends up being, a, he ends up sort of an apostate from the Democratic Party, ends up going independent himself. Right. It's one of the, there's very few remaining examples, maybe none, but where the Republican is the more liberal. But that used to be much more common. And in fact, my interesting relationship with Lowell Weicker is that I once coached his kids in soccer on the hill when they were 10 to 12 years old but that was fun so where'd you go to college i went to the university of pennsylvania Mm -hmm. so an ivy league school with a state school name yeah (laughs) uh so my kids so we have the not penn state you know uh, the most popular Mm -hmm. sort of sweater in the gift shop is not penn state and my kid can't tell it apart and what'd you study there political science and history and how did that serve you I would say not particularly well. Political science, I found to be not necessarily, I thought, oh, I'm really interested in politics. I've had this longstanding fascination with politics. So of course, I'll go study political science, right? And I found that that did not necessarily relate very well to the practice of politics. Now, I eventually found some professors who you know, we're really focused on the practical aspects of things. Uh, we had a great communications program under Kathleen Hall Jameson. One of my professors, who I ended up taking every almost every class that he offered was David Eisenhower. Um, he was obviously uh, the grandson of President Eisenhower and the son-in-law of President Nixon. But not just that, I mean, just one of the smartest people on politics, on history, that you'll ever meet, and you n- almost never see his name in the news. Um, but um, ended up studying under him a lot, um, and, uh, and and eventually branched out, did some history too, because you know I just found a little bit more tangible than most of the political science and you know learning about uh, things in the past. And I feel like you know oftentimes everybody kind of freaks out about what's happening in the present, and I think by paying attention to more history, I think you kind of do it. And actually, in my posters, which are visual histories of different U.S. institutions, I think if you see things in context, you can see how they tend to just move up and down. And and like the end of the world, you know, people think it's the end of the world, but it tends to only be another Mm -hmm. part of our history. What do you think were the roots of you becoming sort of a data and technology person in the space. Where's that coming from, and when does that start? Uh, sure. That, so that starts. I probably put up uh, uh, my first website in 1995, and it wasn't really uh, you know, a website in any capacity. I got on the internet in I think late '94, early '95. This was right around the time I remember when the Republicans first took control of Congress. So there was actually quite a bit heated debate on things like Usenet forums. So this is like the internet before there was an internet and there were sort of these weird other protocols aside from the World Wide Web where people would congregate online. So as a teenager- CompuServe or- Exactly, Prodigy, all these things. I tried 
all of them, right? <laughs> so I was involved in all of them. But you know, in, in terms of, can you, you know, can you mimic a modem connecting still? Uh, I won't do that here, but I, I, I'm very triggered right now. Uh, exactly. And, you know, my 20 minute, you know, I kind of always would end up blowing through whatever the 20 minute allocation I had on my phone bill because I was always tying up the phone line at home to try to connect to the internet. So, uh, but, you know, eventually ended up publishing my own commentaries um, and did that all through college. And you know, when I went to college, uh, in addition to my studies, worked on campaigns. Um, set up a website encouraging George W. Bush to run for president that got Karl Rove's attention. And uh, you that's know, how different the world was, right? That was right. It was 700 was... people, right? Seven, yeah. Like I had 700 people like on a listserv and that was apparently like a big deal at the time uh, for them. Now, granted, you know, we'll today it's a, it sounds like a, a pittance, but so uh, I got noticed by, and I, when I was doing that, um, you know, I eventually made it down to Washington. I worked a little bit in the think tank world as my first job in Washington. In addition to like having done some campaign work up in Pennsylvania, got a call from somebody who had noticed me building websites, you know, uh, so these kind of support networks for candidates and said, would you like to j come join me? I'm building the digital operation at the Republican National Committee. Who was that person? Uh, Chuck DeFail. Mm -hmm. So he ends up sort of having a long, distinguished career in the Republican digital space, but ended up being sort of the lead data and digital strategist during the 2014 election. So it sounds like you said yes to that request. Yes. So I did. So I, you know, ended up doing President Bush's 2004 campaign. A so few talk years a little after. bit about that. So you were at the RNC for a little bit and then sure. it's a re-election year. What was your role and what did you learn from that? And so I was one of two people at the RNC doing everything from writing email copy to updating the website to feeding, uh, you know, initially, you know, it later grew into the political blogosphere was a thing, right? Uh, so I was an early political blogger. I ended up sort of adapting sort of these essays into the political blog format, which sort of burgeoned uh, right after 9-11. It became like notable. And you know, during the 2004 election, you obviously had Howard Dean doing all this stuff with political bloggers. And you know he becomes sort of, for a brief moment in time, the Democratic frontrunner on the backs of the support of the internet and the backs of the support of the political Raises bloggers. Raises a ton here. of money in the middle of the summer. Right, so it becomes the thing. So I was sort of the person they tasked with trying to responding to that yeah. on the right. And, and how so, did that go? I thought it went well. I mean, uh, you know, but I had, so, I had so many other jobs on that campaign. So, you know, eventually I move over to the, uh, you know, and I know that you know, people kind of think, oh, the RNC is the exact same thing as, as the re-election campaign and, and things like that. And the political space, it's a little bit, there are two separate things, although related. So I end up moving over to the campaign proper. And uh, we have about seven or eight people on our team. Uh, and uh, which sounds, again, which is just so tiny compared to nowadays, Yeah, which would be 300 people on a, you know, on a presidential campaign. I mean, you're doing it right. I would say if you're doing it the right way. Right. What, what was your biggest frustration in that role? Because what I would hear on, on our side of the fence was the digital people don't get in the room with a strategist. We don't have the same level of respect and therefore we're not able to get our tools out into the different departments. There's a lot of right. things that could be run a lot better if they would just listen to us. Did you have a similar I experience? think that this is one of the things there's a widespread bipartisan agreement on. I would say like there are some things that you guys did better and some things maybe we did a little bit better. Um, I, I think that, um, you know, I, I really looked at some of the things. And my biggest regret uh, perhaps was, and, you know, every everyone like takes different paths and different avenues, was that I think, first of all, as the incumbent campaign, uh, at least at that point in time, there was a sense like you don't, necessarily go as far out there in terms of you know and, and we you don't were do like as many experiments you, you don't, don't do it you don't risks. do as many in terms of uh, putting uh, in terms of uh, the sort of letting your supporters take the lead and create content on your behalf and things like that that you saw it tremendously very effectively being done by let's say the Howard Dean campaign which is like a completely different style of campaign and we, I would look at that and I'd be like Oh, my God. I mean, I was kind of sad when he imploded because I was like, I thought it would have been fun to run a general election in that environment, even though we would have crushed him like from an electoral standpoint, most like, I mean, who knows? But, you know, it sounds like that would have happened. But from an Internet standpoint, it seemed like it would have been a battle royal. But I think like obviously from a, a institutional perspective, it's a little bit more cautious in terms of 
do we have comments on the website? There would be battles about should we have a comment section on our on our website? How open are we going to be, or how controlling yeah. are we going to be? And that's so, so yeah. there's those there's those sorts of debates. Obviously, like I think there are certain things like in the grassroots organizing space that I feel like we've got to be a little bit more out front on, and you know, got the support because there was a sense like, well, as the incumbent incumbent president. We don't necessarily need to raise money online. Like we have these big donors now. Of course, I think that was maybe a little bit of a short-sighted decision. Uh, you know, when you look at sort of the development of the democratic fundraising ecosystem that really kind of kicked into high gear during 2004, and then you know continued to grow beyond that. But yeah, I certainly think like there are certain things. Did you guys think you were going to win all along? Did you? Did you? What? what I mean, because you know when you talk to folks on my side about the 2004 election, they're like. The day of that election, they thought Kerry was going to win. Yep. The exit polls were that Kerry had it, maybe, right. and there was, and he, I think he thought he won. Right. But well, there's but, a saying in a campaign that you always want to run like you're five points behind or ten points behind, no matter what, because that makes you run harder. Uh, you know, no matter and no matter what you think is going to happen, even if you think you're far ahead. I personally, though, had a sense we were going to win, and I, I, I and I personally was never really in doubt, and it was. Again, maybe a little bit of that historical uh, perspective that I just felt like, you know, we have the fundamentals, fundamentals yeah. uh, of the economy, the fundamentals of, frankly, also the national security situation at the time and not changing horses in midstream in the middle of a major military engagement. And I thought like, you know, people would not would want somebody to see through this major you know, war on terrorism that had just been started. My, my own theory about these things informed by political science is that the big variables, the incumbency, the the economy, the popularity of the president are going to dictate so much of it and that people in aggregate are going to respond to that rather to, than to the campaign. Like the campaign matters on the margin, the candidate quality matters on the margin, but a lot of it is going to be dictated by big forces. And look, I think that like 2016 is sort of a textbook case where I think you really had two a completely different style of candidate that, you know, I thought that there was a theory that people would respond to in a dramatically different way than they would have ever responded to any a different uh, style of candidate in Donald Trump, right? And so this idea that, you know, and I think that there is a very powerful uh, eight years and out impulse in the, the country gets tired of one party, you know, in the White House. And so they're extremely they want, hard to win a third term. That's for the right. Same so up. and I, I thought that that I mean, it, it just that came crashing home that, that there was just this impulse that even though Hillary Clinton nearly won. Right. I mean, this is, this is a very, very tight race. One more vote. Yeah. Yeah, uh, exactly. Right. I mean, no disputing that. But uh, that this impulse is so strong within the electorate to just sort of this mood for change. Well, it was the kind of thing where if you modeled that out a year in advance, you'd say, this is going to be a very tight election. And then it kind of converges on that on those fundamental variables, more or less. Yes. Yeah. And I think that, you know, that's maybe a misunderstanding that a lot of interpretation of politics. So you, after the election, apparently you were the e-campaign director for a couple of years at the RNC. What was changing during that time? At that time, we're trying to institutionalize a lot of the what we thought were the advances uh, of the Bush re-election effort at the national committee level. Of course, it's a very similar election cycle to what we faced uh, this cycle. Um, so we could tout off, uh, you know, it, it, what Republicans faced this cycle in terms of being very challenging for the incumbent party in terms of losing a lot of seats. You know, I think we would argue that at the end of that, we saved a bunch of seats, but who knows, you know, that would have been lost in a, you know, to the blue wave at the time. And I could rattle off stats about, yeah, we had better technology. We had we had instant, we had a head start on the on the Democrats in that uh, election cycle. And we you know had the more traffic to our website. We sent more consistent emails. We sent we did all these different things. Uh, that the Democrats uh, uh, did. I think that, though, you did have a lot of energy, uh, not from the non-party actors in that space. And I, I always thought, well, yeah, we can do everything right from a party standpoint, from an official standpoint. But, you know, if you have the grassroots bloggers organizing and raising money for candidates, that's going to that's gonna do a lot as well. It's And it's not just all what your side went, does on the campaign. There's another side campaigning, and then there's what's going on in the country. And what and so it's the next thing that you do, which is of note to me, because I'm very interested in political entrepreneurship, is you start your own firm. 
right? And you run it for over 10 years. Talk about why you did that and what was the f- sort of founding story for your first firm? Uh, so yeah, uh, we, um, you know, thought like we wanted to bring this uh, model out into more campaigns. I just think there's a lot of the impulse that behind a lot of the people who found, uh, you have uh, Professor Daniel Kreese at, at UNC has done a lot of work at, on this and looking, tracing the firm founding origin stories uh, of different uh, political technology firms. And you find a lot of people who either coming off of working off of presidential campaigns or working off of party committees, that they want to be the one that's sort of doing it their own way and going out there and applying their wares for congressional campaigns. And oftentimes you're going back to the basics. So this was a campaign? Initially it was very campaign oriented, right? I mean, we were servicing a lot of candidates, particularly in the 2010 election, the red wave, I guess you might call it. Like two years earlier, everyone's saying Republicans can't do anything right online, right? You can't not. You have Barack Obama who sets all sorts of records. And then two years later, it turns around and Republicans are geniuses again. And every every Republican who ran in any kind of district or any kind of campaign is a genius. And the, the fact is, it's a little bit more muddy than that because you have that political environment question. But there's no question that I, I felt like we were able to experiment, uh, you know, helped Scott Brown win the that Senate seat in Massachusetts um, with, you know, I believe it was $12 million raised through our like fundraising platform in 18 days, which was like a pretty, uh, you know, big thing at the at the time. Not quite Beto numbers, but almost, right? <laughs> what do you think the characteristics are of a strong political entrepreneur? I think you always have to be in a learning mindset and you have to be very uh, mindful specifically of what the other side is up to. So particularly, uh, I think we had a very similar situation to what happened after the 2004 Kerry campaign on your end where, uh, you know, when Romney lost, I was always of the mind that Romney was probably going to lose for the same reason that uh, John Kerry lost and, and mostly, mostly because of the political fundamentals and the dynamics and coming off of the Great Recession. I didn't think that people would turn out the incumbent president if the economy was getting better than it was, still wasn't great. I think that, you know, really trying to uh, really pay attention to what the, the other side is doing, not just paying attention to what our own side is doing and what the Democrats were doing right for all these years that allowed them, particularly in the context of a re-election campaign where it's hard to innovate, that allowed them to innovate on top of, you know, what they were able to accomplish in 2008 and bring that ethos to the Republican Party, push the Republican Party to adapt, uh, push the Republican National Committee to really beef up its digital operation, um, and really not necessarily doing it from the perspective of, oh, I have a company that's going to go work inside, and I'm going to do this myself, but creating an overall culture and talking about things out in the open, which I, 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 think, I, I think I've done at various stages. Um, you, you mentioned that you paid attention to what happened on the other side. One of the things that I've noted is that um, most consultants don't pay that much attention, especially in the technology world, and that they tend to be very insular and look at what's going on, maybe with their competition or maybe with their clients. You're well known on my side, as I mentioned at lunch, uh, that for going to Roots Camp, which is a you know an open but progressive conference, and like looking at what we're doing, what do you think is the value of? being aware what the other side is up to. Yeah, I think I think I misspoke one year. I, I haven't set up because I don't I don't think there was a formal agenda. They didn't invite they didn't invite me to speak. You I could invited go myself. It's an unconference. You can go there, yeah. create your own So session. I invited myself and I invited myself to uh, take the punishment from the entire room of How did that go? Uh, I thought it went really uh, yeah. it was really a lot of fun actually. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. I um, mean, one of the things that you find out if you talk to consultants on the other side is that by and large, they're very nice people. Both sides are trying through their own lens to make the country better. Um, and a bunch of years ago, I put together a book with essays from different political technology people, mostly, um, including you. And my experience was all nice people, all interesting things to say, fairly equally hard to get them to write their chapter and get it done. <laughs> and, and just like a good experience in, in like reaching across that divide. Yeah. I think that's really important. And so it's such and such a contrast to what we see on social media nowadays, which is so, so polarized, so divided, but also 
a lot of hatred, right? Almost, I mean, almost a lot of contempt. Uh, and that's and that usually comes from the non-professional actors in the space. And so, you know, people make fun of the swamp, right? And, you know, I think that there's one thing the non-swamp can learn from the swamp is that there is actually some level of respect between uh, people on both sides, even though you're, if you're fighting out and duking it out. And frankly, you know, you're doing things that are maybe stoking people. So I think on the side of the swamp is just understanding what are the unintended consequences of this, uh, of, you know, what we're doing <laughs> within the swamp to kind of stoke these polarization. But I think like from, a, you know, when you look at the sort of social media trolling and a, a lot of it comes, you know, from people who are not, have never worked on a campaign. Don't know too much, really. What You sold that company, ultimately. What led to that, and, and what was that experience So like? I decided, I think it's important to self-disrupt change, and, and this idea that if, if you don't do it to yourself, someone else is going to do it to you. Yeah. And, you know, I, ultimately, I always had a very, very strong interest in data, and I think data was sort of the fundamental... Uh, so did you digital. sell this company to start the next one? So I started, yeah, so, so, so what I just what decided I wanted to do was sort of get into, not just get into the polling space, but we ended up, I ended up partnering with a pollster to start Echelon Insights, which again, it does polling and data. Which and, I think is a wonderful name, by the way. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, you know, I, I don't know that we have... You know, I mean, it, echelon sounds like it's like a high echelon, right? Right. Plus it has something to do with data, echelons of data. And, uh, and I think it's also, it was the name of the Signals Intelligence Program during the Cold War. And that's how really we tracked was, down uh, what the bad guys were I doing, did not know right? That. So uh, that was part of it, but it had multiple meanings and we didn't necessarily, you know, we wanted something with maybe multiple meetings, right? But um, no, who, I, I, who are clients of yours right now? Uh, so, you know, we work with party committees, we work with public affairs type organizations. And what are you providing them? Uh, you know, we're oftentimes providing them with everything from a traditional survey and polling and focus groups, the things that are all the things that you would imagine a traditional pollster to do, but with the analytics as well, which is a, which was an innovation, I think, uh, you know, we talk about it on the Obama campaign, but it goes back ultimately to the 2004 Bush campaign, which is applying polling, you know, findings down to the individual level. Uh, in calculating, understanding who your voters are, who who people are at an individual. So, level. are you? Do you do phone polling? Do you do internet polling? We're not. We're medium agnostic, yeah. really. I mean, it really depends on what the what the tool. You know, who the audience is. I mean, if I would say, yeah, if you want to talk to millennials, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense <laughs> to do telephone polling. They're not picking up the phone. But that still, actually, despite everything, does make a lot of sense in a lot of different contexts. If you're running a state, you know, if you're running in a state, even with the challenges, even with the, you know, the challenges, the rising costs of doing that, because people are picking up the phone less and less. Frankly, we also do a lot of digital signals intelligence, going back to that signals intelligence metaphor that we do look at uh, signs in the Twitter data, in the Twitter stream and, and social media space everywhere, search volume, all the different data sources we can find. We're, we're sort of, political space is very tool oriented. So you're, you know, you're sort of, you're a mail consultant, you think mail, you know, mail is the solution to every problem. You're a phone consultant, <laughs> you think let's just call more voters. And I've never thought that way. And so I think that more tools, the more obviously there's tools of outreach and then there's also tools of listening. And the more tools we can bring to bear to the problem, the better off we're going to be. I'm curious to speak with you a little bit about the 2016 election, which is in some ways, as we discussed, perhaps an election of fundamentals, but in some ways a very different animal because of the fellow who was elected president. And I'm curious what you think of him and what you thought of him kind of along the way as he was disrupting, to use your word, the Republican primary. Uh, so what I thought about him along the way, I think I was pretty clear about what I thought about him along the way. And that was that, you know, going through the primary process, I was probably as horrified as anybody else that something like this could happen, that you know, these norms could be torn asunder and that a Republican primary electorate would ultimately elect somebody who, you know, did not seem like at the time the most electable candidate, um, but also seemed to be going against a lot of what the party had to say, particularly on a lot of economic questions. And I think he tapped into something very visceral uh, that existed out in the country. And lo and behold, it was not something that was just happening in the Republican Party. It actually turns out that it was happening 
to a broader extent in uh, demographics that uh, were important in the general election. I wouldn't say like in our divided country he spoke to some broader yearning out there because there is no universal sort of broad yearning anymore. We are pretty a divided country and it's a matter of which side, but I think he was very, you know, I would say he was very adept at finding a group of voters who uh, had, had eluded Republicans for a long time in the general election, uh, which I think I give him, you know, despite my distaste for a lot of what's happening, right? A lot of the norms violations, let's call them, a lot of the tweets, a lot of the... The character of the man. Right. Very unique, to say the least. I did, you know, I wasn't ever Trumper, but I do have a lot of, you know, I do have a lot of appreciation for the fact that he has completely reoriented the political space. And it's something that Democrats have to honestly react to. What what do you think are the positive things that he's done? Well, look, I I think that in some way, the the cynical, uh, swampy creature that I am, you know, in some ways, like being a non-politician in some ways means that uh, you're less attentive to some of the details of governing. And that certainly could have all sorts of negative consequences. Um, But as a result, I think that it has had some consequences in that he has relinquished oversight over uh, you know, to the traditional Republican Party, to Mitch McConnell, to a lot of things over things like judicial nominations, over things like the Supreme Court, where he famously put out a list that was essentially a list written by other people then uh, and, and nominated his Supreme Court picks off of that. And that, that has turned out to be more successful than I think anybody dreamed, let's say, uh, when you're looking at uh, you, when you were staring down the death of Antonin Scalia in the middle of a primary campaign and everybody panicking that, oh, my God, we're going to lose the White House and we're going to shift the Supreme Court forever. Did, did you root for him in the general? I did not. No, I, I was probably also going under the assumption that his losing was a foregone conclusion. So that, you know, I was trying to be concerned, that, like, if, if this happens, if he loses, what does the Republican Party look like next? And I think it has to go back to first principles. It has to go back to the things that has made it successful in the past. I did not discount the possibility. Uh, you know, I'm sort of maybe it's 20 percent that he wins. Hillary Clinton does not seem to be maximizing her opportunity here. But I, uh, you know, certainly didn't. No, I did not root for him, did not vote for him in the general election. Did you pay a lot of attention to the technology underlying the two campaigns in 2016, which you've got a long term interest in that? Yeah. So I think on the Republican side, certainly this seemed like in some ways a reversion back to the pre pre Romney days in terms of you had this candidate with absolutely no infrastructure, right, running uh, on the Republican side and, you know, had no sort of digital real infrastructure aside from a Twitter account during the primary campaign. They build that big Facebook operation, though, right? Right. And eventually they sort of do that out of necessity because uh, guess what? Nobody can. I mean, he's a rich guy, but he's not that rich. You know, there were people who worked for me who worked on that, who were instrumental in that effort um, to build up a Republican sort of you know, a republic. He's sort of the Republican Obama in that sense. Like he did in that medium, capitalize on. on and he did a lot with sales of merchandise and stuff too. Right, yeah. and that's a big deal too. I mean, I remember. Uh, so one of the one of the big <laughs> sort of uh, th- cultural shifts, uh, like in the Republican. This is just like the debates uh, that we had during uh, you know some of the campaigns. These th- narrow technical debates is: Are we going to outsource our merchandise sale to some vendor who's going to make money off of it? Or are we going to sell them directly to the campaign and count it as a donation and therefore keep that donor name? Because that's the, one of the, that's where a lot of these donations actually come from, is merchandise. So we, we are sitting right now, the first time I've ever done a podcast with an audience. We're sitting right now in a class that you teach at Johns Hopkins, or co-teach. Tell me about that class and what led you to decide to teach its data visualization and politics. Yeah, no. So we are uh, looking at all aspects of data and politics through the lens of data visualization because it's very important in, uh, in, in doing data. It's very important to present 
that data and to explain to decision makers what it means. So we're going over all aspects of that, and that's you know both from a perspective of building uh, out and using the various tools of the trade of data visualization and data analysis from R to Excel to Tableau, the things that, um, you know, the things that you may use in a, in a real world situation, whether working for a polling firm, working for a think tank, working throughout DC, but certainly any space that's sort of adjacent to this. So what I'm going to turn to now a bit is your students have given me some questions to ask oh you and they're yeah. uh, they're all they're all very good questions so one of them is that you said on twitter oh my god <laughs> trump is a normal president right. doing normal things except for the tweets so the question is yeah. how do you make sense of this and is this true uh well i think that look uh, from a policy perspective a lot of the things are normal republican presidenty things i mean you know look at the people who's nominated to the supreme court um, well, let's let's talk but, about the abnormal things because so the abnormal there things are there are, are there are there are a few abnormal things so i yeah. don't want to say there are no abnormal things yeah. i think the most abnormal thing is the communication style which is what i'm getting at with the tweets right that is or, or, sort of the or, most or the lying right the constant Daily lying, that's un- unusual. You don't think yes, so? Yes. <laughs> well, I think, you know, uh, that's, yeah, maybe I, that's, that's both sides. I mean, it's more, than, but, but, it's more stylistic, right? That's, not, that's more than stylistic. I mean, there's a, there's a certain disregard for, you know, well, factual situations. Yeah. I think that, uh, <laughs> you know, you might call it that. <laughs> right. But there's also a, a, other heretical things from a Republican standpoint, like right. trade war. Trade war. So trade war. Yeah. I think so. That I think the two issues he cares about the most. I think the three things that he will die on a hill on are trade and immigration. Right now, I think number two, number one, like those are positions that are not necessarily from a, from a Republican standpoint. Now, certainly, he's he's violating years of Republican orthodoxy. But guess what? He kind of gets to do that. He's well, president. Well, <laughs> right. You're right. The, the immigration thing is interesting because there's a there's a legitimate point of view. I think that both parties have and, and and almost any of American shares that we have to have some control over who comes into the country and that we should have a legal system that allows people to come and go in, in, a, in a regulated fashion. And so there's legitimate points of view on a spectrum along that. But where it's become uncomfortable, I think, is where he has kind of unabashedly linked racial calls and ethnic demonizations and stuff with that he is changing the culture and teaching people things that are often i think on most of these things where he is seems to be out there rhetorically and what you normally find is that there is a lot more support in the country for the things that he is saying even text and subtext than is assumed inside the Washington D.C. media bubble, I right? Think, and I think, I mean, like, I think my, my, the right. progressive world has kind of woken up to that slowly, and they're like, right. con, like shocked on a daily basis. I've studied the issue of immigration a lot, and it's such an interesting topic, right? Because you have, uh, on the one hand, a very strong support for things like Dreamers. You have strong support for pathway to citizenship, right? So you have a lot of those issues. And then you have, we, I am part of the voter study group, which is sort of a nonpartisan, bipartisan group of people that looks at sort of survey data objectively, uh, you know, based on large-scale longitudinal studies of the American electorate. And you've had for the last few times in that, in that survey, they've asked, do you support a temporary ban on Muslims entering the United States? Now, that is, of course, wildly unconstitutional, right? He had to completely, you know, he said that during the campaign, but he's had to refashion that into something uh, that is a that was more na- it was tied to terrorism or certain nations something or like whatever. that something like that but uh you know that support that question is you know relatively evenly balanced in terms of support or opposition so there's a uh, and so, so half the people so half the people but in, in, and I'm, I'm particularly honing it on this muslim question which everybody knows is religious discrimination and is unconstitutional Half the people support that. I'm not saying that's right, right. but I think that particularly but, when you tie it to issues of crime and things like that, that those are the areas where he's actually honing in on a segment of the immigration debate that I think the left 
overlooks, which is like, but, but we don't want illegal people but, coming into the country, you know. Right, but you, but you want your leaders doing the right thing, not the popular thing, right? And that, I think, is a, an aspect of leadership that uh, I think he is uh, completely not attuned to in any, in any way. Right, now I think he's a kind of a savant about division. I don't disagree with yeah. that. How much more polarized can we get? And what do you think is the outlook for us on a partisan basis? I think that Trump has has fast-forwarded a lot of these divisions that are probably, I mean, he has fast-forwarded a process. Now, maybe we'll see some regression to the mean in the next non-Trump election. Maybe maybe we'll see that. I think that'll be a blip, right? I think that um, we've seen the suburbs move consistently in the direction of Democrats since the 1990s. Um, This is not a new process. We've seen the sort of rural white areas of the country move more in the direction of Republicans in that time period. And it's not been, it's, it's really since the 2000 election that that process slowly happened. And then boom, you know, everything kind of goes off a cliff, right? In 2016, just as everything goes off a cliff for Republicans in 2018, losing all the congressional seats in Orange County, which are probably not coming back anytime soon. We might win them back for a stretch of time, right? I'm not saying that. But the long-term trend is of acceleration of these trends. It actually turns out that 2016 uh, was a less partisan election than 2012. 20, 2012 was actually the high watermark in terms of Republicans voting for the Republican candidates and Democrats voting. Because you have voting. a little bit of a different Republican right. running. And but so I that think that uh, Trump over. changed the notion of what a Republican uh, is, and that has actually caught up in 2018 where people are realigning their vote for Congress to their vote for president two years earlier. Another question from a student is, after you sold your first company, did you experience any kind of sort of separation, anxiety, or post You know, I had depression? a long sort of, it felt like I had a long period of time, but there were certain clients, you know, I just loved, right? There are certain clients I'd love to be involved with, particularly in helping some folks we've helped out internationally to uh, and uh, develop. So you're not going to admit to depression? No. Okay. Uh, what data visualization project that you've done are you most proud of? Oh, my gosh. I mean, we try to do uh, do this every year for the last few years, and we're kind of deciding whether or not we want to do it this year. But we had, uh, we've had this uh, long-running project called the Year in News, which is essentially aggregates about two, it's up, been up to about 2 billion Twitter mentions a year, and broken out by about 100 different topics. So we go day by day and track the spikes in conversation uh, that happen across not just overall or about Donald Trump, but uh, across all policy issues, across all stories in the news. And that's just been fascinating. Uh, we also break it down. We've also broken it down by, you know, what are folks on the right saying? What are folks on the left? Are they really kind of, you can really trace the partisan echo chamber. So that's been something that's been, you know, gotten a, a good amount of reaction. You know, when we put it out, it's usually like picked up in a few national publications. And I am kind of honestly admitting to rethinking about that because everything is so Trump. Everything is about that. It's, it's almost not interesting anymore because everything is Donald Trump now. What is your proudest career achievement? Oh, gosh. I would say, I would still say it's part being part of a winning presidential campaign. I don't think there's anything like that. I mean, even though I played a very, I would say, I would, you know, I wouldn't say, I, I would say I played a minor role in that process. And I'd say that there are probably things that I did later on where I probably played a more rager role, but I felt like that was one where it was a truly a, a massive effort that sort of defied a lot of the expectations like going into... It's part of history a little bit, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, and a lot of these other things, I mean, they'll be sort of moment, like, you know, somebody will remember them, but I think, like, more people will probably remember that, even though, you know, even though I was in a relatively junior position at the time. Uh, I'm continuing with uh, student questions. Here's another one. What is the one piece of advice you would give to someone entering the field of data visualization for the first time? Well, I think it's just keep tinkering, keep trying to perfect things, right? And I think you say you say you say this a lot too. It's just like you can't uh, you just have to have a maniacal eye for detail and really accuracy and all these different and clarity of explanation and there's not just one. Why do you need that? If political communication can be done with the bludgeon of Twitter, I, I, what, what, why would it matter the details of some 
I think, you know, I, I think that, that for something to be very clear, you have to go through a lot of iterations of it first. And sometimes I will put things out there. I'll, and I'll, be, I'll be unabashed about putting unedited things out on Twitter. But I think engaging that iterative process in the, is a very important part of the creative process, ultimately. Someone writes, what are your odds for 2020? I think they mean, who do you think is going to win the presidential in the next time around? Uh, so I think, you know, try, I think it's pretty close to 50-50. I would give a normal incumbent two to one, you know, sort of uh, 65% odds of winning. I, I think Democrats have shown, particularly if the turnout is going to be as off the charts in 2020 or anywhere near as off the charts in 2020 as it was in 2018, makes it very unpredictable. Uh, it makes it perhaps so that Democrats can bring new voters to the polls that w- would just be enough in some of these states. But it could also mean that a whole slew of Republicans, you know, who were previously not motivated to vote, um, particularly in the white working class, also show up for Trump. Um, but I, th- I would give it closer to 50-50 odds than... It's hard to be ever wrong with 50-50. Now and yeah. and I, I had a no predictions policy prior yeah. to uh, I think it's the, because you don't know if there's going to be a recession or a war. Well, that's or, a that's yeah. a big contingent. Yeah. I think it'll ultimately hinge on a lot of those fundamentals. Now, this question is clearly the question of if someone younger than me. So I will just read it. It is uh-huh. what is your hottest take? Well, I have a whole thread of hot takes. Right? I mean, I think that that that, that Trump, like the, the Trump, the hottest. Trump, the Trump, like normal president take is probably because I think it's like hot. I hot takes serve a purpose, right? They serve you know sort of shifting the Overton window a little bit. Which people talk about that, the sort of boundaries of acceptable conversation. You know what's interesting is I had on, <laughs> I, I, think, I had earlier on my show a Harvard professor of government, Steve Ansalbaher. He said something very similar about like he said like the left thinks that Trump is Hitler. He's not. He's doing mostly Republican things. Now, I think one risk we run clearly with this president is that if this investigation that's going on turns up something enough that ought to be an impeachable offense, let's say he's committed enough crimes with his business or there's enough conspiracy that that it becomes clear that he won the election illegitimately, to the extent anyone can say something like that. Supposing there's really a bombshell here and like you would agree and your never Trump people would agree and a lot of regular Republicans would agree that this is impeachable and convictable. Do you think that the Republican Party in such a moment would turn on him or what might dictate whether they did or not? Uh, It all comes down to Republican voters. I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, even if, uh, you know, this sort of uh, this idea, you know, we've had this sort of uh, shocking sort of reset of conventional wisdom in the last campaign, whether or not you think like, again, like, I don't I don't think like people should do the right thing, regardless of what they think their voters are going to say or not say. Right. But at the end of the day, the incentives are aligned such that anybody who turns on the president at this moment in time in the Republican Party is dead meat politically in a primary, right? And uh, you saw that with Senator Jeff Flake. And, you know, you've had a lot of people who were sort of never Trump and sort of became Trump agnostic and were sort of kind of survived and then maybe some won, some lost in, in the last election. But I think at the moment, it is very difficult for me to foresee anything because I, I don't think there's going to be a common consensus agreement on the set of facts that would allow the political people to unite across the political spectrum in one conclusion or another. It does seem hard to imagine how a Senate convicts if a House impeached. It's hard to... Uh, Everybody says like that. I mean, I think it's one of the big misunderstandings of government that we have is that like impeachment is one part of that process and it's the House process. And we've had this in our recent history with Bill Clinton and it failed spectacularly at the polls as well. Right. It really backfired. What do you think the characteristics would be of the next president, regardless of party, to follow a divisive era like this? What would you like to see? I would like to see a normal Republican or, or more normal Republican do, uh, you know, also act in, you know, maybe not tweet, maybe, you know, uh, be a little bit more boring, uh, not as interesting, more interested in the details of policy. The ironic thing is, I think, 
you know, somebody like Jeb Bush would have, because he knows policy, the ins and outs of policy so much, would have probably been more disruptive to traditional Republican orthodoxy in, in a lot of ways than somebody like Donald Trump, who will defer to experts in areas where he doesn't really care about the nuances of policy. So I'd, li- I'd certainly like to see somebody with that intellectual curiosity, let's say. But in terms of, you know, I think we've historically we've seen this sort of reaction to, uh, you know, you certainly see each president is a reaction to the one that came before. Or there's a way to think of it that way. At right. Least. I think, you it's- know, it's sort of like as a reaction to but whether it's a, from a partisan standpoint. But I do think, you know, will some will people go for somebody boring? Uh, I don't know, because that is actually a characteristic that's sort of adverse selection from from a presidential election standpoint. One thing that I've noticed is that the most persuasive cases I've seen made against Trump have been made by some of the Republican consultants that have turned on him and that are speaking with a kind of clarity that the Democrats haven't mustered, I think. Sure. Why do you think that is? We talk about partisan hatred and partisan, uh, you know, I think it's it's very easy actually to hate people in your own party more sometimes than uh, people on the other side because you're supposed to hate people on the other side and you're inured to that and everybody kind of knows it's a little bit of a, oh, we have to say this guy cheated on his taxes. He didn't, you know, he skipped a payment on his mortgage or something. We just kind of have to say that. That's par for the course. But I think like when you see somebody come into your tent and disrupt sort of all the ways of things have traditionally been done. I think that that is very jarring. Whatever you regard as the motivation for that, I mean, I think there's a lot of people very, very sincere and concerned in that motivation. But there are, you know, there's certainly, it's certainly true that, you know, he has disrupted the way that Republicans have done business. And so the people who have been doing that business are, you know, very upset about that. There's also a kind of, I suspect there's kind of a guilty pleasure in watching him, though in the idea that he will do and say things that most people wouldn't. And yeah, and there's an admiration for that sort of caution to the winds right. uh, nature. He's also he not paying a political price for well, each I think incremental. Is, I, think I think in the aggregate, yeah, yeah. I think you're right. But I think in terms of each incremental example of Trump doing or saying the unthinkable is uh, less and less powerful. Does anybody else have a question that they would like to ask? Or we got them all out. I don't know if I got everybody's, but I tried to. It's been a great honor to talk to it you here in your class and to Thank come you. in. Is there anything else you want to say? No, I, I appreciate the opportunity. It was fun. So that was Patrick Ruffini. He is at echeloninsights.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with The Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at resistancedashboard.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.